Welcome to Keystone Education Radio, the podcast for all things focused on education in Pennsylvania. Now here's your host, Annette Stevenson. Opportunity gaps in the student population can stem from various systemic and societal factors and for a wide range of reasons specific to individual communities and families. Today's discussion is focused on summer programming, summer learning loss, and the long-term impacts for students from year after year of unproductive summer months. We'll also be addressing how to reduce the stigma that has surrounded the traditional summer school model of learning and how flexible learning can take place in and out of the school building. The start to summer planning begins in September to be ready for the following June, so now is the time for schools and communities to begin thinking and planning for next summer. And here with me today is Rachel Gwaltney, Director of Policy with the National Summer Learning Association. Thanks for joining us today, Rachel. Great. Thanks for having me. So we'll jump right in to get a little bit of context. And maybe you can start by just telling us what is summer learning loss and how does it relate to the achievement gap? Yeah. So summer learning loss is what happens to all children who don't have access to stimulating and enriching activities during the summer months. So we know that all kids lose mathematical and reading skills, and they're just not sharp when they return to school in the fall. But disadvantaged children experience this to a much higher degree because they don't have the regular access to activities, books, or healthy meals, all the things that school provides from fall to spring. (laughs) So these students are falling behind while their higher income children are building their skills steadily over the summer months. They're getting all that practice. They're getting to go to the library. They're getting to be in programs. And so what happens is that every summer, those losses and gains add up so that by the end of fifth grade, our lower-income kids might be two to three years behind their higher-income peers in in literacy alone. Great. So what are some of the detrimental outcomes for students from spending summers without learning? So, you know, the summer learning loss that you talked about, what does that look like in long-term detrimental outcomes? Yeah, I mean, we have to combat the myth of idyllic summer. So generally, you know, people have this view that summer is a time to give kids a break, to have fun, or they're going to have lots of free time and sort of make their own learning and, you know, make their own activities. But the reality for low-income kids is that that time is not spent doing fun and enriching things. You know, it's spent at home caring for younger siblings. You know, they don't have regular access to meals. It's spent watching television, doing video games, you know, that sort of thing. They don't have that opportunity to make their own fun. So and middle and high-income parents get that. So they're spending an average of $7,500 a year on enrichment for their kids after school and during the summertime. So those are the kids that are going to camp, they're getting a job, they're traveling with their family, or they're even, you know, just going to the library every week with their caregiver. So without that summer of structured and engaging activities, whatever those might be, it doesn't have to be a formal program, that's sort of how we see summer learning loss accumulate throughout a summer. And then, as I said, every summer, those losses add up, those gains add up, and so you get these gaps that grow and grow over time. So we know that this has an impact on graduation rates, it has an impact on college going, it has an impact on the opportunity to get a job in the summer during the high school years. So all of these things kind of add up over time. And I'm assuming there is data that supports all that you're describing. What is, you know, what does that data convey to us? 
Yeah, over 100 years of research demonstrates the negative impact of a summer spent without learning and how summer learning loss disproportionately affects low-income kids. So we know that summer learning loss is a, is a problem, and we know that low-income kids are affected the most. Teachers confirm this. When we do surveys of teachers, they report spending up to six weeks reteaching material when kids have not had access to a summer program. The research also shows us the impact that summer has on other opportunities. So, you know, kids without physical activity are gaining weight. We know that there's a lack of access to federally subsidized meals in the summertime, so we know there are real health impacts. So there are lots of research that shows what the, the negative impacts. On the flip side, the research also shows us what works. Um, many years of research on program practices has shown us what characteristics make up a high-quality summer program, you know, what characteristics are needed to generate those positive outcomes that we're looking for. Recent research from Rand Corporation and the Wallace Foundation demonstrates that low-income kids who are participating in voluntary district-based programs were able to make academic gains in reading and math that lasted just, you know, beyond just that one summer. And we know from teachers that they report, you know, kids coming back to school more ready to be focused, ready to learn, there's less reteaching. And, you know, teachers can tell when kids have participated in the summer program versus when they've spent their summer just kind of doing whatever. So they can see that the kids are ready to go. They're in that school mindset. You know, they're ready to they're ready to keep learning. And what the research really shows beyond all else, when you look at all these pieces together, is that you know, summer is an opportune time to help kids catch up. So going through a summer program won't necessarily, you know, completely reduce that achievement gap, but it's a good opportunity to help close the gap. And if the program is done well and it's high quality, we know it's going to have a positive impact on kids. Okay. And so as far as socioeconomic factors, I think what I've heard you say is that poverty tends to be sort of that driving key factor playing a role in in how the summers are spent and obviously impacting that achievement gap. Is that accurate to say that poverty kind of is the common thread there? Absolutely. And, you know, we know from the research that nationally, the average weekly cost of a summer program is $288 per child. So, you know, this is not just a low-income problem. If you're a middle-income family with a couple of kids and you want to put your kids in a six-week summer camp, you know, those costs can really add up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and resourced parents know that. They know the difference that having their kid in a summer program makes. They know that these kids want to be engaged and doing something fun in the summer, so they're willing to spend the dollars on that on that enrichment. And think of it, too, as a child care issue. You know, low-income families cite the summertime as the most difficult time to find stable childcare. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it kind of ranges when you think about a low income family and all of those issues that they're trying to address, summertime is a huge challenge for them to overcome. And so it's important for us to make sure that there are free programs available to the parents and, and families that are most in need of those resources because we know that middle that higher income parents are going to pay for those things. So putting that mix together in a community, I think, is important. Mm-hmm. And so you touched a little bit on this as far as the idea of an idyllic summer and maybe even what some would say summers of past. You know, you'll hear people of certain mm-hmm. generations <laughs> reference summers of the past where they just, you know, rode their bikes and went to the swimming pool and whatever. So how should a balanced summer look, you know, where students are being given some reprieve from the the traditional instructional period of the school year, but also maintaining, you know, productive thinking, learning, growing? How does that, how does that look in a balanced, ideal world? Yeah. 
So our view is certainly not that kids need to be in traditional summer school. Summer offers an opportunity to learn in ways that you just cannot do during the school year or in a school-based environment. Um, schools are certainly the cornerstone of learning in a community. They have data on which kids are most in need. They're very well suited to be the hub of summer learning in a community and bring in the partners that enhance and make learning fun. So when we work with school districts, we really try to kind of have this vision in mind. So in 2009, NSLA launched a new Vision for Summer School peer network um, as a way of repositioning summer school within education. And together, our district partners put together five principles for planning and executing a district-based summer school program that, you know, increases and enhances the scope of traditional summer school, so it looks and feels different from school. They target participation by students who benefit the most and using that data to focus on kids who really need that extra support. These districts are using system-level coordination to bring in community partners and make sure that kids are getting a wide range of activities. These districts are doing really innovative professional development so that staff know how to deliver summer programming in a way that looks and feels different from school, but is still impactful. And I think most importantly, they're embedding summer learning into the district's school year operations and planning. So summer has to be part of the full budget. It has to be included in curriculum planning, hiring planning, transportation planning, all facilities planning, all of those things that districts need to think about. So we really encourage our districts and our other partners to think of summer as an extension of learning. Mm-hmm. So the academics might be tightly connected to the school year. They might be using the same learning program, the same curriculum, the same reading strategies, even the same classroom management techniques. But teachers are able to personalize the learning a little bit more. They're able to build different kinds of relationships with their kids during the summertime. We just visited the Teachers in the Park model. So teachers are going out to where kids are in parks and rec settings, and they're teaching, you know, highly academic literacy instruction the same way that they might do it during the school year, but they're doing it in a non-school setting. And the kids are just getting a lot of fun out of it, and it feels like summer camp because they're at the park. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But they're getting that high-quality academic instruction. Summer also allows schools and programs to personalize learning with really targeted instruction using tools like math software so that kids can learn at their own pace. They can hit the skills they're the most in need of. You know, it's not trying to tailor one lesson to 30 kids like you might have to do in a, during the school year. So we see summer as a really flexible time. So, you know, in schools like in Pittsburgh, the Summer Dreamers Academy combines that academics with community partners. They use school year data to monitor student progress. Another city, Boston, does Boston After School and Beyond summer programming. They use the city as a classroom. So kids are going out to lots of different program partners around the city and engaging lots of different stakeholders and giving kids an opportunity to experience different kinds of learning in different kinds of settings. But it's all coordinated with a shared system for measuring success and monitoring quality across the network. We see our rural districts doing the same principles in a rural setting where they've got lots of kids participating in summer programming, but they're using these principles to guide how they do that in a way that feels different from from school. Um, And I would just say, you know, I'd add to that, in addition to our district-based programs, we recognize outstanding summer programs that might be community-based and demonstrate excellence in accelerating academic achievement and promoting healthy development but in a non-school kind of setting. So, you know, one program, the Children's Circus of Middletown, Connecticut, fosters positive development through 
fun, challenging physical theater experiences for eight to 15 year olds. So these kids are working on teamwork and performing and life skills and self-confidence, but we know that that's going to have a positive impact the same as a school-based program will. Sounds like there's really a wide range of ways that programs can be developed. If a district is looking to launch a program, where do you see the most help or support needed in doing that? You know, what are some of the challenges they might face? Yeah. So we like to say that summer starts in September, meaning that planning for the next summer starts immediately when the, when the summer ends. So you can't start talking in May about, you know, what kind of summer programming are we going to do this, this June, this July? Right. A lot of districts and schools that are launching new summer programming, a lot of times that starts with a single teacher or a principal who says, you know what, my kids need something more in the summertime and they need to keep going to, in order to stay on track. Mm-hmm. And so they want to put something in place. So we see the challenge come from having the time to plan, to get all the right people involved, and then, of course, to find sustainable funding to keep things going year after year. And then over time, you know, programs um, put in the work to maintain quality, build quality and maintain quality to ensure not just that they're going to produce, you know, strong outcomes, but that kids want to attend and want to come back regularly. So like I said, you know, embedding the summer learning planning into the school year operations is really important, including summer in the full budget, making sure that it's part of the plan when it comes to, you know, curriculum and how we're going to use it, how are we going to include teachers in the summer, how are we going to pay them in the summer, how are we going to transport kids to the right sites. All of that has to take place over the course of the school year. It can't just be sort of the last minute. We encourage schools to think of the summer as an opportunity for teachers to learn and develop their practice. It doesn't feel like more school because teachers get to try out learning activities that they might not have time for during the school year, or they want to try it with a different, you know, smaller group of kids and just kind of feels like a different setting and a different culture. And, you know, frankly, the accountability is different. Yes, we want kids to be learning and making progress, but the focus is not on testing and standards during the summer. It's more about meeting kids where they are and, you know, sparking and tapping into their love of learning. Great. So, You know, kind of looking back historically, I think before maybe there was so much summer programming, but there was summer school, and I believe it's always carried a stigma. Do you believe that there is stigma still involved in any sort of summer learning program, and how can that be mitigated? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing that we've, a couple things we've seen districts do to take away that stigma of summer school, um, one thing is that they make it open to all kids. So we know that there are some kids who, because of their test scores or, you know, where they're at academically, they may really need extra support. But by making the programs open to any student who wants to attend, that sort of removes this feeling like summer school is a punishment that only the kids who are not achieving have to go to. We've also seen our districts and schools rebrand it. So it's not summer school. It's called Summer Dreamers or Fifth Quarter or Summer Quest or, mm-hmm. you know, some other way that they're creating a camp-like atmosphere and feel to the programming so that it doesn't feel like, oh, you're being, you know, selected to go to summer school. Right. We have one one school-based program who rebranded as sort of, it's a by invitation only. So it's like okay. you get to come to this because you're special. Yeah. <laughs> not you have to go to this because you're failing. Right. Um, so we see that that really goes a long way to making kids excited about it and getting parents to feel like, okay, you know, I, I know my school, I know the school is going to do good things, but this is something that's going to be fun because that's what parents want. They want, you know, they want their kids to be able to do something fun as well. And then the way that schools integrate um, high quality enrichment partners 
helps them build and maintain a lot of excitement for kids to attend. So they get to do, you know, they might be doing reading and math in the morning, but they get to do karate or arts or robotics, you know, in the afternoon or swimming. So districts have done a really good job incorporating a really wide range of, of enrichment partners so that it feels like camp. It feels really fun for kids. There's a lot of choices in there. There's a lot of team activities. Kids are making their camp friends and they get to be together every day, like just like going to camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so all those things kind of help make it not traditional summer school. And then on a, on a technical, sort of on the more technical side, things like having community eligibility for the federal summer meals program also helps with that. So every kid can go get a summer meal, not just the kids who are um, free and reduced eligible. Okay. And so that that goes a long way to removing the stigma around the meals piece as well. And so a lot of programs, especially school-based programs, which are going to use that federally subsidized meals program anyway, if they can serve those meals to all kids, it just helps them administratively, and it also helps take away the stigma. Yeah, absolutely. That leads into my next question kind of nicely, because what I wanted to touch on is how maybe it pertains to funding, support, but is it important for the schools to connect with their legislators to express the needs of their community as it pertains to summer programming, and what can those relationships do with the legislators? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly the biggest challenge for summer programming is to braid together the resources to fund and sustain and grow these activities. So, you know, there's key federal funding that flows from the federal government, from states into districts and communities. So, you know, legislators need to hear from programs, you know, what these funds are doing, why these funds matter. Uh, We know that for generally for every public dollar spent on summer programs, they raise two private dollars. So we're not just looking for public funding to cover all costs, but the public funding goes a long way towards stimulating other investment at the local level. And that really helps programs grow and and improve the quality of what they do. States and districts also need guidance from government to help direct, you know, available public funds toward evidence-based activities like summer programming. They need to know that summer is an allowable use of some of these funds a lot of that's often not clear. So, you know, there's a lot that schools can tell their legislators about what we need to know about summer, why summer funding is important. We have research briefs in our Knowledge Center that are a tool that we use to help educate policymakers and other stakeholders on the key research about summer in a way that is sort of easy to digest and understand. Mm -hmm. So we have some good tools to help support that, the legislative conversations for sure. Okay. Two things that have stood out in all that you've highlighted to me, which is, one, the need for data, because a lot of what you described was either informed or driven by data. Would you say that that's essential to some of this? Yeah, absolutely. You know, certainly schools often want to start by targeting the kids who are most in need of academic support. And in some cases, you know, they may be mandated to serve those kids during the summertime. So. Mm -hmm. Having access, and whether it's directly from the school or through school partnerships or district partnerships with community-based organizations, you know, being able to measure and see where kids are at and what kind of growth they've been able to make over the summer is important. I mean, we also think it's important for summer programs to be able to collect data like uh, parent and student satisfaction and, you know, questions around social-emotional development. There's lots of different ways we can kind of look at the impact of these programs. Mm -hmm. And so programs sort of evolve those systems over time, for sure. Okay. And another thing that stood out, which I'm happy is when folks are hearing this at the school level, it'll be right in time for them to start planning 
what I heard you say is that summer starts in September and that the planning yeah. really needs to begin with the start of the school year. So would you say that's kind of the kickoff to the timeline? Absolutely. And, you know, thinking about, you know, the school annual budgeting process, how do you build summer into that conversation? How do you use your reading specialists to help bring together literacy teachers who are going to teach in the summer and start thinking about curriculum? Those are some of the things that we kind of see happen early on in the process. So we have a lot of great resources for to support schools, you know, starting their planning early on. One of the tools we recommend is the Wallace Foundation Summer Planning Toolkit, which includes a planning calendar and lots of resources that go along with that. That work was derived from the summer learning study that Wallace and Rand did. So it's really based on district work and all of the great resources and tools that were learned from that research study. We also have our Summer Starts in September Planning Guide, which is a system for continuous improvement um, for programs from year to year. So that helps programs start with their, you know, goal setting in the fall, training staff, assessing program quality during the summer when the program is in action, and then reflecting on program data at the end of the summer and debriefing with those key stakeholders about what goals um, they'll set for next year. So we have lots of great tools and resources that support district planning that starts in the September and how do they progress throughout the year to make sure they're ready to go when summer comes. Great. It's like there's a lot of support for schools wanting to start a program or maybe revamp their program. Can you tell us what your website is so they can go looking there? Yeah, our website is www.summerlearning.org. And we have a knowledge center, which is really the hub of all of these resources that I've been talking about. And if I can just add one, you know, final thought, you know, summer learning is different from any other kind of learning that kids can do during the school year. They can focus really deeply on what's of personal interest to them without the distraction of the full set of classes and after school activities. They can learn with other kids and teachers who are just as passionate about robotics or music or arts or coding or books as they are. They can work in teams to solve real world problems and issues without having to translate those skills to a strict testing environment. Um, You know, learning can be so authentic and exciting in the summer. This is when kids really have a chance to take charge of their own learning and explore what they love. So let's take advantage of that. Absolutely. I want to thank you so much for highlighting all that's available and also highlighting really the importance of available programming in the communities. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This episode was brought to you by the Pennsylvania School Boards Association and was sponsored in part by Keystone Purchasing Network and Tremco Roofing and Building Maintenance. Listeners, I encourage you to go to our website at keyedradio.org for more on today's discussion and check out our site for past episodes covering a wide range of other education-related topics. This is Annette Stevenson saying thank you for listening to Keystone Education Radio. The views and opinions expressed on the Keystone Education Radio podcast are solely the views and opinions of our guests and do not reflect the views and opinions of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. Thank you.